Hello, everyone, and welcome to Arch District, the podcast. My name is Sterling Shea, and I'm so excited because this is our money episode. And joining us for this episode is Tori Dunlap. She is a nationally recognized millennial money and career expert. After saving $100,000 at the age of 25, Tori quit her corporate job in marketing and founded her first 100K to fight financial inequality by giving women actionable resources to better their money. She has been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, The New York Times, People Magazine, New York Magazine, Forbes, CNBC, and... Adding to that list, the very prestigious Arts District, the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to Tori about how we as artists can negotiate salary, pay off debt, build savings, and invest. All right, here's my conversation with Tori Dunlap. I wanted to tell you how I found you and why I wanted to talk to you. I have been trying to gain my own financial literacy for about a year now. And I kept listening to podcasts or reading blogs that would be like, oh, just get an investment property and earn money that way. And I was like, "Uh, they're not talking to people in my tax bracket. So I thought, you know, if I'm feeling this way, there must be a lot of other artists in DFW that feel that way as well. And I must have manifested something because I found you on TikTok that night. And I found out that you were a theater major and I just got big heart eyes and I was like, I have to talk to her. Oh, thank you. There's actually a lot of us. There's a lot of theater majors turned financial experts. That's super cool. Yeah, it's very random. There's a bunch of friends of mine who do what I do and we're all theater majors or theater backgrounds. So it's kind of funny. Well, can you talk me through how you got to where you are today and where it is you are today? Yeah. I mean, I was lucky enough to have a really great financial education growing up. So I had parents who were really committed to making sure that I understood not to overspend on credit cards and how to invest and how to negotiate. And I grew up thinking that that was just normal. I was like, oh, okay. Everybody knows not to do these things. Everybody knows how to money for lack of a better phrase. Um, And then I graduated college and realized, of course, that wasn't the case. And I was working in marketing. So I have a degree both in marketing and in theater and then decided to to work in a social media role in a corporate environment. And I did that for almost five years and then built her first 100K on the side. So I realized again that with that privilege of a financial education came a responsibility. So I was the friend all of my female friends were coming to for advice and guidance. And especially in a post-Trump 2016 world, uh, I realized that Truly, I think our best form of protest is a financial education. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, grew her first 100K on the side for three years and then took it full time last year. That's amazing. Yeah, I really appreciate that you don't tiptoe around conversations about racial inequality and gender inequality and privilege. I mean, why do you think it is that despite the growing awareness around those issues that they still persist? Oh gosh, I feel very unqualified as a white person to be able to talk about that. <laughs> for me, I can speak about my own work. I think that, yeah, we don't have any sort of equality for any marginalized group until we have financial equality. And the more even research I've done in the past couple months, you know, I knew that there was these, you know, gender equality gaps, these 
racial equality gaps, but, you know, specifically when it comes to finance, when you start doing the research around, you know, the net worth of a black family versus a white family and, you know, the percent that own houses versus black families that don't. And it becomes so staggering that just as an individual, I, I need to have these conversations about race and privilege and about what's happening in our country. And then as somebody who has an audience and who also, you know, is a financial expert, I think that I can shed a unique light on like talking about these things in terms of money and in terms of personal finance. So there's so much work that I still need to do. And I know that, but I think that we have to have conversations about money that also acknowledge systemic oppression. Because I feel like there's so many of these financial experts, I'll call them out by name, Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman. They'll talk about, you know, how to budget and how to save money. And that's helpful to a point. I don't want to just talk about how, I want to also talk about how we got here. And I think that it's really important to not just tell you, and we were talking about this, you know, how to budget, but also like, okay, if I earn less or if I, you know, am going to be, I know I'm going to be discriminated against at some point in my life, multiple points in my life, I need to manage my money differently. The statistic is women live actually seven years longer than men do on average. So we have to manage money differently. It's the same thing, you know, if you're a black American, you're going to be discriminated against and therefore you have to manage money differently. If you're a gay person, if you're a disabled person, right? There's all of these factors that we need to consider when we're offering financial advice. It can't just be, here's how to budget. Here's how to invest. Here's how to negotiate your pay. We have to discuss these things in the context of $1 billion student debt crisis and you know discrimination and oppression and the lack of accountability we've taken around slavery in this country. So, you know, so there's so many things that you have to talk about when you're discussing money that are not just the how, but you know, acknowledging how we got here too. Yeah. Can you talk about the decision to leave your day job and commit to your own business full time? Because I think there's a lot of people listening that would love to be a freelance artist and leave that desk job. There was two things for me that I was glad I did. One, I was glad I waited as long as I did because I think we're fed this narrative of just like, oh, just quit your job, like go full time especially in the artist community. Yeah, be a boss, babe. <laughs> uh, yeah, and as a theater and as a theater person too, it was very much like you're a sellout if you choose a corporate job. You know, like you're not a real artist or you're selling out if you're making money somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, like staying as long as I did and learning, I say every job is paid training until you get to do what you love, right? So if you can make a really good paycheck or even, you know, a consistent paycheck, gain some new skills, gain some new connections, that job funded my business, both Mm -hmm. financially and from an educational standpoint, right? And so I was really glad that I waited over three years before I quit. And I quit on the heels of a Good Morning America interview, knowing I was making as much money, actually more, I think, in my business than I was in my nine to five. I had all of my ducks in a row. That was one thing I was really glad I did that that advice is not as prevalent, I think, as it needs to be of like, there's nothing wrong with getting a corporate job and hanging in there. The second thing I was really glad I did is kept that corporate job to make sure that going on my own is actually what I wanted to do. Because again, we're fed this narrative, like grass is always greener, right? We're like, oh, entrepreneurship, like it's going to be so fun and ideal. And I'm an entrepreneur and I love my life right now because I realized after, you know, years in corporate that that's not what I wanted to do. 
but it's not all roses. You know, there's like so many parts of being an entrepreneur or a freelancer or being on your own that, you know, is, is very challenging and very different. So I'm glad that I stayed as long as I did. It reaffirmed consistently. Oh, I don't like working for somebody else. Like, yes, the steady paycheck's great, but honestly, I would rather have inconsistency if it means that I don't have to work for somebody I don't believe in, or, Mm -hmm. you know, only take a week of paid vacation a year, you know? So I'm glad I waited as the TLDR because I think it was really important to for me to to affirm my choices, to affirm that's what I wanted to do. And then my first full month of entrepreneurship, I made five times the amount of money I would have made at my nine to five. Wow. It was a lot of planning, a lot of really being strategic. And then when I made the decision, it was like, oh, this is the most natural decision in the world. Yeah. I mean, did you have a lot of naysayers? in the stand saying, well, how will you pay yourself? How are you going to get healthcare and all that stuff? I mean, part of that was me. I did my own kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, soul searching when I was going full-time entrepreneur. You know, I have super supportive parents, but they made really smart, stable decisions. And this was risky. And so I had a lot of conversations with my parents and they were like, okay, but what are you going to do about health insurance? to your point, like, what are you going to do about this? And they were like, no, you need to keep your job. Like, you need to keep your job. And it just got to the point where I, I was telling myself those things too, of like, oh, I can't make the leap because I don't know how I'm going to pay $400 a month for health insurance. Mm-hmm. I had enough money to pay health insurance. Sure. I yeah. almost like put blinders on because I was too afraid to actually see the reality that I was okay because it meant that I was going to have to make the decision. The decision to quit actually wasn't entirely mine. I was getting a lot of success in my business and there were some people at the organization I was working at that didn't particularly like that. So push kind of came to shove where it was turning into a not super healthy environment that wasn't supportive of me and my business anymore. My boss was always really great, but there was other people at the company who did not like that I had a blossoming business. Honestly, like I joke that the universe kind of made the decision for me. And I think it was kind of, <laughs> I just keep picturing the universe, like looking down and being like, okay, you're not going to fucking do this. I'll do it for you. You know, like you're yeah. not going to make this happen. I'll just, I'm going to push you. I'm just going to have to do it. And it was a lot because of my parents, they made really smart, stable choices. And it gave me the life that I had, which I'm so thankful for. I have to consistently condition that out of me, able to be, you know, smart and stable and steady, but also taking those risks where I need to. I mean, how do you think having a degree in theater prepared you and gave you a lot of the skills that you need to do all those other things? Thank you for asking this question because I wish more people did. I need it for myself because I'm constantly fighting with my parents and I already have my degree. So Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, the deal with my parents was like, I have my primary major and then kind of what was called jokingly my hobby major, which was theater. (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's so much I've learned. And you and I were talking that there's a lot of people actually who do what I do, who are like personal finance experts who actually have an arts background. Two of my friends, Aaron Lowry, who runs Broke Millennial, and then Stephanie O'Connell, they're both theater people. And so we joke about that all the time is that our theater degree got us where we are. But I mean, it's so many things. One, just feeling confident enough to speak in front of people, to speak on podcasts, to speak on stages, to coach people, to storytell. I mean, there was so so much of my own success, like especially getting press hits was my ability to tell my story and to tell it really well. And that's branding, right? It's like, how do you tell your story? How do you, you know, get people subscribed to the mission of your organization or your brand? And so I was able to do that because of my theater background. Hearing no 
constantly, like, you know, being resilient. There's so many times where I'm pitching for opportunities or I'm going after something and hearing no, but I know that I'll get a yes eventually. So the resiliency of that, of, of not being afraid to, to pitch yourself over and over and still hear no, and the vulnerability of that, of showing up and continuing to say like, this is who I am. Would you like to work with me? And then potentially being like, no, or yes, of course, there's that element too. And then I think just being super collaborative and supportive. I think you have to do that. You know, if somebody drops a line on stage, you have to be there. And I think that that was really helpful, not only in my business, but in my, in my corporate career too, of just understanding, you know, the problem solving and the kind of, you know, I'll figure it out, you know, because especially with live theater, you get, you know, you get one shot at that. And so you're there consistently making sure that you're supporting everybody you're on stage with. So yeah, there were so many, so many aspects of my degree that I use all the time and the confidence to continue pushing and pitching myself. Think it's really, really deep. Yeah, I always say in an interview, like, oh, I know how to work with no budget. Right, right. <laughs> I know how to launch a full scale production with $75. Right, right. Good point. Yeah, that's a great one too. I'm sure you must have had an enormous amount of stage fright, like going into Good Morning America or something like that. Were you? I was nervous. It was more excitement. I mean, it's very similar to theater, actually, is that when I was doing a show, I'd be nervous or I'd be excited. I'd get my first line or couple lines out, and then I was good for the rest of the show. Yeah, it's that like familiar anxiety where you're like, it's good that it's there. We got this. <laughs> and just repeating the first line over and over and over again, because I know if I fuck that up, everything's fucked. But yeah. as long as I get that first line out, I'm good. Yeah, it was the same thing with Good Morning America. Pretty much every, like, especially on-camera interview I've done, it typically takes me, like, 30 seconds to a minute to, like, warm up. So, like, I can tell my first one or two questions. My responses are a little... Yeah. They're not super on yet. And then once I'm in it, I'm I'm in it. I mean, the theater 100% prepared me for that. And I consistently, you know, work with reporters and they go, oh, you've done this before. And I'm like, mm-hmm, I have. You know, because the being comfortable on camera, being comfortable in front of people is a skill that you know, all of us have as, as artists, but outside of that is, is very much, you have to train yourself. Right. And we did our own training. If you don't come from that background, that is a huge, you know, step or a leap that you have to take. So yeah, as far as being comfortable, being in front of people, that's, that's a hundred percent something that, you know, you and I are both comfortable with because we, we have that training. So tell me like what a day is like for you. What does a money expert do? Are you someone that tells me not to buy lattes and avocado no. toast? No, you know I'm not that person. No, I, <laughs> I, I joke. I am never going to tell you to not buy something. I just, I yeah. don't think that it's healthy. My lovely friend Paula Pant, who's another money expert, says you can afford almost anything. You just can't afford everything. And so, I mean, my days, I mean, they're very varied. I'm creating courses. I'm writing blog posts. I'm coaching people. I'm on podcast interviews or press interviews before COVID. Sometimes I, you know, I would fly and do keynote speeches and that sort of thing. Obviously that's not happening as much now. It really depends. It just kind of depends on the day, but typically the day is I wake up, you know, create a couple TikToks or write a few Instagram posts, check in with my team and, you know, answer emails, write, write some blog posts, do some promo, maybe for a course I'm launching and then maybe create materials later that day. And then maybe a coaching call or two. And that's my typical day. Yeah, I really, I, I liked your rule of thumb. I took your webinar on emotional spending. Oh, cool. 
because I feel like once everything reopened, I did that a little bit. I was like, I'm going to go to every antique store in Dallas. I love it. Didn't need to, but that was really helpful. And you kind of said, just identify three things that you love and you want to treat yourself to and like make a budget for that. Yeah. And I don't know if you can see, it's mostly this way, but I have about 50 plants in my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) So plants are the thing, one of the, one of my value categories that I love spending money on just because they bring me so much joy and I love tending to them. There's ways that you can identify things that you want in your life without completely depriving yourself and without making sure that you're not buying absolutely everything that you're, you set your eyes on. So I pulled some of our listeners before this interview to get an idea of where everyone is at. And 64% of the DFW-based artists said that they are almost never paid for their work as an actor or a stage hand. And I know how we got there, which is just expecting to be so grateful for the opportunity that you'll do anything and feeling like, I can either work and be artistically fulfilled and not get paid, or I don't get artistically fulfilled and I don't do anything. Right. How do we change that? How do we advocate for ourselves when we get an offer? Yeah. I mean, I think this goes back to not only the how, but also the system. I have this as, you know, as a speaker and as a woman who gets asked to speak all of the time for free. And the, the really ironic one is that I get asked to speak about advocating for your worth or how to negotiate your pay and they don't want to pay me. <laughs> I think they fail to see the irony of that. I acknowledge that this is twofold. One is, yes, how do we advocate for ourselves? But two, how do we change the systems that are just expecting us to work for free? Because if I turn down the person who's asking me to speak, they can find 15 other people who are going to do it for free. You know, and so that's not so much, I think, the issue of they're not asking for it. They're not asking for what they're getting paid. It's that organizations expect free labor. I think demanding better of our organizations, especially for BIPOC. Uh, yeah, I've, I've had so many friends and so many colleagues who have done unpaid labor from organizations who could have paid. You know, there are a lot of organizations that are up and coming and maybe they're not making money. And so you're not making money too. And then there's a lot that do have money and still don't pay, which is the one that really irks me. As far as you advocating for your worth, I have actually a whole workshop about negotiating for either a raise or negotiating for like a starting salary. But the biggest things to keep in mind is that, yes, we're fed this narrative, especially if you're a woman or another marginalized group that like, you should just be grateful for your opportunities. You should just Mm -hmm. be grateful and just kind of shut up and just deal with it. And we use that to actually our advantage when we're advocating for ourselves. So negotiations, I like to say, are collaborations, not conflicts. We view negotiations as a society as like, okay, I'm going to have to unsheath my sword and put on my boxing gloves and like fight to the death to get what I want. Yeah, That's not true. You're actually not on opposing sides with the person you're negotiating with. You're on the same side trying to work to find a solution together. So you're problem solving together to find a solution to you not being compensated fairly, right? And so when you're thinking like, oh, I should just be grateful, you can still be grateful. You can still be, you know, seeped in gratitude and also have a conversation about compensation as like a collaboration, not a fight, not an argument, not a conflict. And the second thing you can do when you're negotiating is always keep in mind the value you're adding to somebody as well as the data. So anytime you can showcase your experience, your education, 
you know, projects you've worked on before, that's your value add, right? Or if you've already been there and you're asking for money or asking for a raise, showcasing all of the things that you've done that have really elevated that organization or elevated your role there, as well as what is the data saying? If you can find data, whether it's, you know, qualitative, you know, or quantitative, if you can have conversations with colleagues, if you can find actually like salary data online, anytime that you can show them, actually, this has nothing to do with me. This is just what the data is saying. You know, somebody in Dallas should be getting paid for this, this sort of role. Then that's a great way to highlight, hey, I'm not only really great at my job, aka my value, but also here's what the market salary data is saying. Yeah. I'm very sympathetic to those theater companies that are in the first two or three years of their life that I know don't have money and are just trying to keep their doors open. But especially just in the nonprofit sector, a lot of times I would get an offer and they did not talk about money at all. They didn't say, hey, this is an unpaid project. They didn't say it was paid. They didn't say it was based off of ticket sales. They just didn't say. And then you feel kind of like an asshole for asking because they're like, well, all of our funds go to children with brittle bone right. syndrome right. and we're a nonprofit. We're trying to cure cancer. Yeah, yeah. We're so humble, small nonprofit. And it's like, but also I need to eat. Yeah. Yeah. They do that on purpose, not because they're bad people, because, you know, they believe in the mission of the company. They want you to believe in the mission of the company too. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you don't, right? Is there's a way to frame it where you're like, gosh, I'm so excited about this role. I'm so excited about your mission. I also need to make sure that, you know, I'm being compensated fairly. So, you know, what is your budget for this role? Mm. You know, that's an easy, easy way to just be like, hey, I'm super excited. I'm not dismissing that. I'm not just in it for the money, right? And I'm not in theater for the money. You're like, yeah. what do you think yeah. I'm doing? Obviously. So you can say, you know, I'm so excited about this role. I'm so excited about the mission of this organization. What is your budget for this role? Yeah. And then sometimes they'll go, oh, there is no budget. And then you get to decide. I can make that decision for myself. Yeah. That's cool. That's great. Okay. So I want to talk about debt a little bit. And I mean, between credit cards, student loans, car loans, a mortgage for some of us. Is there one that's most important to pay off first? Like what's yes. hurting my credit score? Tell me. So credit cards are going to start you at at least 15% interest. By comparison, student loans are typically 4 to 5%. Mortgages are around the same. Car loans are typically like, you know, 2 to 5, depending on the car loan. Yeah. So really credit cards are the thing that's hurting you the most unless you have payday loans. Payday loans are the worst. They're upwards of 400% interest. No, that's not a typo. No, that's not me getting the number wrong. 400% interest. That's a whole other conversation about predatory financial practices in the United States. But if you have uh, payday loans, that needs to go first. But most of us, I think if you do have debt, you might have credit card debt. And that is what needs to be eliminated first because it is costing you the most money. It's starting at least 15% and going all the way up to 30 As far as when you're paying down debt, and I talk more about this in my personal finance 101 workshop, which I can send you the link to for the show notes. But really the, the key with debt is to funnel any extra money you have to the principal balance of your loan. So continue making your minimum payments, continue you know, making, making the credit card payments you need to make, and then really try to not put extra money on there. Really try to not put any, you know, go into any extra debt as well as any extra money you have, funnel that towards the principal balance of your loan. And that may mean that you have to call your credit card provider and ask, like, how do I specifically funnel money towards the principal of this balance? You know, because mm. that might be different. But that's why debt can feel like you're drowning. 
because you're not just paying money towards the principal, you're paying towards principal and interest, right? And it makes it harder if you're continuing to accrue more interest, carrying more of a balance on your card. So anything you can do to, of course, not not go into more credit card debt and funnel extra money towards the principal, it's going to be really helpful. So I recently heard that if you close a credit card, that negatively affects your credit score. Is that true? It can. Yeah. Because part of your credit score is what they call your credit history, AKA how long you've had credit for. So if you have had like, let's say a card for eight years and that's your longest line of credit and then you close it, Mm. suddenly maybe you're only at six years, right? So even if you never use that card again, don't close it, put it in your closet, put it in a drawer somewhere. But yeah, like there's a card that I barely use, but it's my first credit card that I got in college and I haven't closed it because I I know that it might hurt my credit score. It's a temporary thing too. If you, if you have closed a card, like that's not going to be damaging for life, but so yeah, know that it's a temporary thing. Am I good as long as I don't max it out or should I be keeping it at a certain wavelength. You're stop following me these questions. I so appreciate it. Um, So we call it credit utilization. And it's basically for lack of better phrasing, how much of your credit are you utilizing, right? How much are you using to boost your credit score? Anything under a 30% credit utilization rate is considered great. And if you can get it under even 10%, that's amazing. So let's say you have a credit line of $10,000. As long as you're spending under $3,000 a month, right? That's a lower credit utilization. And the way that that works, right, is it's you showing credit card companies that you're a responsible borrower. And that's why your credit score can go up. Because you're like, oh, I'm not maxing out my cards. I'm keeping it at a certain amount every month. I'm not even getting close to my maximum. Therefore, I'm a responsible borrower. So you can ask for a credit line and then not use it. I recommend that for a bunch of people is ask for a credit line increase, but then don't use it. So ask to go from like 10 to 12 or, you know, stop spending as much money as you're spending. So the credit line typically is is a good way to go. Just be careful. Don't use that credit line increase. Use it to your advantage to boost your credit score, not as an excuse to spend more money. See, I was taught, and I am asking you leading questions, but I just learned all of this from you in the last three weeks. (laughs) So I was taught, my mom's a credit manager. So she was always just like, she was a single mom up until I was like 12. And she was just always like, Sterling, don't use a credit card. Do not use a credit card. If you're going to get a credit card, please call me so we can talk about it. Yeah. So I didn't get one until after I was married. <laughs> that happens a lot. Credit cards are the most amazing thing if you're using them responsibly. They are the most detrimental thing if you don't use them responsibly. Yes. Right? So I have two and they're about half full, but that gives me so much anxiety. If you're paying your credit cards on time and in full, meaning that you're not carrying a balance month over month, meaning that like if it's due the 15th, you're paying it on the 15th, credit cards are the best thing. It's actually the best fuck you to credit card companies to use them responsibly because I have never been in credit card debt. I've never paid credit cards besides like an annual fee, which I'm happy to do because I get perks. I have never paid credit card companies a dime. Like they will never make money off Mm. of me. They're actually paying me to use their credit cards with files and points and cash back, right? So if you use a credit card responsibly, which means you're not carrying a balance, you're paying it on time, it's a great tool. But yes, if you don't have a great relationship with credit or you grew up feeling a lot of anxiety around credit cards, you know, getting over that is going to be really key in order to have a better relationship with money. 
Cool. Okay. That makes me feel better. Only about half of our listeners said that they have a retirement account. I just started one literally a month ago. Cool. I think a lot of millennials live under the assumption that they'll never be able to retire. So why bother contributing to an account? So do we need a retirement account? Is our generation ever going to be able to retire? What are your thoughts? I wish I could just say like, yes, in the biggest, biggest font possible. Yes, you need a retirement (laughs) account. A little bit of tough love. Retirement is the biggest expense of your life. It is the biggest expense of your life beyond going to school, beyond sending your kids to school, beyond buying a house, beyond buying, I don't know, three houses. It is still the most expensive thing you will ever do in your life. And it's really about the amount of time, not about the amount of money you contribute. Because I hear two things when it comes to investing. One, oh, I'm not rich. Investing is for rich people. No, it's not. Two is, oh, well, I have time and I can wait. And investing for retirement is for people in their 40s. No. The moment you decide to start saving for retirement is the best day because you didn't start tomorrow. It's all about time rather than the amount of money. So if you were to put $100 in a retirement account today as maybe like a 25-year-old and then never touch it, that will be thousands of dollars when you retire. And obviously that's not enough to cover you in retirement, but this is the example of like small and steady is better than waiting until you supposedly have a lot of money when you're older, right? Okay, I'll, you know, I, I won't start for another 10 years because I'll be making more money then. If you just have $20 a month to put in a retirement account, that is a great idea. The other thing I'm seeing a lot now, especially on TikTok, is like, oh, I'll invest with Robinhood or I'll invest in individual stocks. And the best way you can invest is in a tax advantage retirement account, like a 401k, an IRA, a SEP IRA, et cetera. Robinhood is for short-term investing, which is literally an oxymoron because investing is meant for long-term. And I'll talk about this on TikTok this week about why I don't recommend Robinhood. But that's the narrative that gets fed is like, oh, this sexy investing is like individual stocks and day trading. And like, that is not how you build wealth. It's just not. The steady, unsexy way of like, yeah, $20 a month, or obviously more if you have it in a tax advantage retirement account, like a 401k or an IRA, that is how you build wealth. That is how you secure your own retirement. It's not in the sexy Robin Hood short-term day trading bullshit. <laughs> it's not there. Okay. So a 401k is something that your work provides, like your day job, your nine to five. And then an IRA is something that you set up yourself, right? Yep. Almost anybody can open up an IRA. There's income restrictions, but that's for, I think if you're making like over 175k a year. So you can have an IRA in addition to a 401k, or if you don't get a 401k through your work, an IRA is a really great option. It stands for individual retirement account. So you're opening that on your own. I'll send you a link to M1 Finance that you can put in the show notes. And that's who I recommend you open up the IRA through. But yeah, it's a great way to start saving for retirement if you don't have a a workplace-sponsored retirement program like a 401k or a 403b. And I think I don't. So that's good to know. I don't either, technically. (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) And there's a bunch of self-employed options. And I talk about that in my Personal Finance 101 workshop as well. There's a bunch of self-employed retirement account options. An IRA is one of them, but then you have other options because you are like your own workplace. So yeah, besides a 401k sponsored through, you know, a traditional employer, there's a bunch of other options too that you can take advantage of. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I was, 
my husband and I were setting up our retirement account and the person walking us through it was just explaining like, okay, you're going to start getting a check for this month, this much at this age. And then da, 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 and here's how it's going to spread out. And I was like, okay, is this in addition to the social security check? And he was like, no, the point of this is to get you out of that tax bracket. And I was like, Oh, like I didn't even, I just kind of decided in my head, like, oh, I'm going to be that old lady that's pinching pennies and tipping badly because I didn't, you know, I'll I'll never have the skills to like get myself out of that. I mean, again, this is like not, and I say this because I know it's not realistic for everybody, but it's a great example. So my goal of saving $100,000 at 25, that was my goal that I hit. At 25 years and three months. And that's what I built for first 100K around. If I never contribute another penny to my retirement, which I won't do, but if I never contribute another penny, I will have $1.6 million at 65 just from that 100K now. And again, Mm -hmm. I know you might not have 100K, you might not have 100K at 25. I totally get that. But it's more about, again, time, right? Is if I never contribute another penny, that 100K, which in comparison to 1.6 million is not that much money right? Grew to that without me having to do another thing. Even if I never contribute another penny, I have a million and a half dollars waiting for me in retirement. So that's the motivation for me of just like, start small, start now. It doesn't have to be a ton of money, but don't wait until like, oh, I'll wait until I'm older. Because actually, even if you contribute sometimes double when you're older, you'll still not have had as much time and you'll still not have saved as much as when you started, let's say five or 10 years earlier. So if it's payday, I pay my rent, I pay all my bills and I have, let's say a thousand dollars left over. What do I do with it? Do I, should it go to savings? Should it go towards debt? What's the most important thing? Your most important thing before debt, I don't care if you have a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand dollars in debt, you need to have an emergency fund first and it needs to be in a high yield savings account. We do that for a couple of reasons. One, we don't want you going into more debt, trying to pay for an emergency. Mm. And two, the mental stability of like knowing you have something in the bank is just really, really nice, especially in COVID, especially with the world as turbulent as it is. Again, I talk about this more on the personal finance 101 workshop, but actually before you even pay your rent, I really want you to transfer money into your savings and put that on autopilot. And it's called paying yourself first. You do the hard thing first, but you're not tempted to spend all of your money later. So whether that is 5% of your income or you know $100 per paycheck, that, again, doesn't have to be a ton of money, but set that up automatically. You can either do that through your payroll platform or through your bank so that it funds, goes into your savings account first. That way, you know that whatever money is left over is for your bills or for fun stuff, right? So you're paying yourself first. You're doing the hard thing and you're getting it out of your way. So you don't have to like think, oh gosh, I have to go and save money, but I don't have any money left over. You know, I've spent it all. So if you're on it, like a turbulent income or a, or a, you know, if you're wondering, you know, what you get paid every month, then maybe it's a little less money that you're saving automatically. Maybe it's not as much money. And then maybe you do have some money left over after that you go, you know, put into your savings account again. But I find that it's really, really helpful to do it before anything else as almost like your first expense. Like you're paying yourself before you're even paying your rent or your utilities or your groceries. And you said 
I can call my bank and they'll do that for me. Yep. You can usually set it up if you have, if you do online banking, you can usually okay. set that up too. It's like, okay, on the 15th and the 30th of every month, I want this percentage or this amount transferred out of my checking and put into my savings. Okay, cool. And then can you explain what a high yield savings account is? Happy to. So your everyday bank, whether that is your local bank or credit union or a national bank like Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you're earning on average 0.01% in interest, which is pennies. It's nothing. A high yield savings account is, there's no catch. It's literally like the exact same account. It's just through an online bank that's going to earn you like 50 times more in interest. So that's something I recommend to everybody is like, just switch over your bank account. It's the easiest thing you can do to immediately start earning more money. They're FDIC insured, meaning that your money, your money's safe. Yeah. It's like the best kept secret. That's not really a secret. <laughs> yeah. I, when I found you and that was one of the, that's one of the first things on your website with your five easy things to do. I was like, there's no way, there's no way. I just don't know about this. I had to call my dad. I was like, do you know about this? Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? Well, and I think, uh, again, it's like a lot of the marketing and the messaging we get fed is from these like major banks, mm-hmm. right? Who have brick and mortar costs, right? And so they can't give as much an interest to people. And I think also they don't want you to switch to a competitor, right? So yeah. they don't talk about high yield savings account. So yeah, right now, as of this taping, a high yield savings account is anything over like, 0.5 or 0.6% in interest. Again, if you're going from like 0.01% to like 0.65 or 0.7, that is yeah, significant. World yeah. better. And yeah, I mean, I've earned, you know, just having, you know, a couple thousand dollars in there, I've earned like hundreds as opposed to pennies. So, and that's yeah. your money that's just sitting there making money while it sits there. Exactly. And if your money's just going to sit there with an emergency fund, that's what we want, right? We want it sitting yeah. there accessible to us it may as well be earning you more money. Like yeah. make your money work as hard as it can for you. So cool. So are there, as far as day-to-day budgeting, is there easy wins that we can be working on? Like, are there apps that you recommend or how can we be more mindful about our day-to-day spending? Yeah, there's one, um, the budgeting method is like the the crux of my personal finance 101 workshop and it's no apps, no spreadsheets required. So I don't reveal that Ooh. because that's in my workshop. Okay. But as far as when you're budgeting, when you're thinking through that, I mean, the three value categories are great of focusing on your discretionary money. What are the three areas in your life where you want the majority of that money to go? AKA, where does it bring you the most joy, right? And for me, that's travel, food out, and nesting. The plants, the throw pillows, making my apartment look real cute. And you get to decide those three categories. Maybe that's makeup. Yeah. Maybe that's going to shows. I mean, pre-corona, I guess. You know, I have a client who loves fancy cheese. That's one of her value categories, specifically just cheese. She really likes her cheese. So yeah, d- you know, you, you get to decide what those value categories are. I have a ton of tools that I use for managing my money, for tracking my money that I'll send you. If you go to herfirst100k.com slash tools, most of them are free. You can find them all there. I'll send you a link for the show notes too. Personal capital is one that I really like where you can track your net worth and you can see all of your accounts in one place. So you can see your retirement accounts and your savings accounts and your credit cards and your student loans. And you can see them all in one place, which is really nice. So you don't have to like go and check your balances in a bunch of different areas and forget your passwords and shit. So yeah, it's all in one place, which is great. 
but yeah, I'll send you a link to all of those. Okay, cool. You have a lot of great resources on your Instagram. You give a lot of free advice. I said I took your emotional spending webinar and I just bought your job interview package. Oh, cool. So I was up way too late last night making my resume way better. Can you tell folks, I mean... You're also on TikTok, which is super fun. So what are the other great services that you offer? I know you have Finance 101. What else can we holler at you for? I appreciate it. Yeah, so I have a bunch of free resources. I really try to keep my advice accessible. So you can find me at herfirst100k on all of the platforms as well as herfirst100k.com. Yeah, I have templates. I have a resume template, a cover letter template, a job interview guide. I also do my personal finance 101 workshop which is the last time I'm doing this live is actually mid-September before it gets turned into a course. So if you haven't already, it's my signature workshop. It's, it's one that I really yeah, know is super valuable for people. I also do negotiation coaching and negotiation workshops. So if you're negotiating for a starting salary or a raise, we can talk about that. And then I also have courses. I talk about a side hustle. I have a side hustle course around how to start and grow an online side hustle. Like I said, her first 100K started as a side hustle. And so I'm, I'm dropping all, this, all of the knowledge I wish I knew when I first started. Yeah. And then I also have a course I'm really proud of that we're opening probably in the transition into 2021 with my friend Alexis, who's a positive psychology coach. It's called Master Your Money. And it is like the all-encompassing money, money course with psychology. So like, why do you keep self-sabotaging? Why can't you save money? Why, why do you have all of this like bullshit narratives around what money is? And so we unpack all of that around, you know, goal setting and, and yeah, how to stop self-sabotaging. And then I come in with the actionable advice and, and guidance around investing, paying off debt, boosting your credit score, saving money. Like we cover everything. So yeah, we'll probably be opening that as we transition um, into the new year. So yeah, lots of different ways to work with me, but I would love to see you. We have a free Facebook community. We have a bunch of people on Instagram and TikTok. So yeah, we have a whole group of financial feminists who are getting their shit together. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, I have one more question for you. Yes. You have seven minutes in heaven with Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> what are you doing? What's oh, going God, on? <laughs> this is so graphic. <laughs> Anything he will consent to. Let's just say that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I'm like, I don't know if you can see in the background my Timothy Chalamet cardboard cutout. No, I can't. He's a little That's tiny, so he's a little funny. tiny guy. I had a follower send me oh, that he's about this big. I, I do see it now. He's not, he's not life size, but oh my gosh, someone's like, oh Jesus Christ. Oh, that's hard to think about. Anything he will consent to. Anything. Let's yeah. Say that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You are so wonderful. I just think you're the coolest rock star ever. And <laughs> I appreciate everything that you're doing for women and for these artists that are listening. Thank you so much. I won't keep you any longer. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. All right, everyone. Isn't Tori just the coolest? Ugh, I just feel so fired up after talking to her. I'm ready to get my shit together. If you're feeling fired up too and you want to learn more and make the first step towards your financial goals, go to herfirst100k.com and check out the courses she offers. She has great webinars, digital downloads, one-on-one -on -one coaching, so many ways to get started today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. It's going to help us get more great guests like Tori. 
All right, everyone. We will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Bye-bye.